This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome everyone. Um, once again, I'm Patrice Petro, Director of the Carsey Wolf Center, and I'm here with Rick Rosen, and um, we're here to discuss scenes from a marriage. Um, we've talked about the questions that we want to address, but I thought we'd start... Because when Rick and I were talking about tonight's event, which we really wanted to focus on the status and future of global TV, he suggested let's do scenes from a marriage. Have you seen it? It's really quite great. And then it was about which episode, since there's five episodes. And it's hard to think. So initially we thought, well, we'll just go with the The pilot. With a pilot, you know, because it'll introduce you. But the pilot provides, you know, some interesting information. But then Rick got back and said, no. We, we need to do the fourth episode. So I wondered if you'd just say a little bit about why you think the fourth episode is so Im- important. Well, first off, the pilot is, is very um, exposition, expositional. You know, it just sort of sets up the series. There's not a great deal of drama in it. Um, there's a, you know, a piece of the pilot which deals with uh, their best friends who are having marital problems. It's the last time you see them in the entire series. It's kind of not part of the show. And as Patrice laid out before we started watch the show, each episode builds, the drama continues to build and build and build as you see this relationship, which starts in a, what seems to be a very healthy place and ultimately disintegrates. Um, and the fourth episode is by far the most powerful emotional and climactic. Um, And interestingly, the fifth episode, the last episode, which follows this, is really a very soothing episode. Patrice and I have talked a little bit about this. I mean, it's, you see these people come back together after they're divorced. Um, There's a whole denouement about this episode. It's somewhat, you know, in some ways... Uh, reassuring, um, but it pulls the whole thing together in a place where you, you've been really ripped apart by this drama for four episodes, and this sort of puts it to bed in, I think, a very satisfying way. Yeah, I agree. So you should watch the whole thing when you have a chance. Well, I'll turn to my first question, and I carefully worded these words matter, you know. But... Um, Haggai Levy is one of the few Israeli creators who's done format adaptations like B. Tipul um, that gave rise to HBO's In Treatment. And he's also done original Israeli shows that have had international television distribution. With Scenes from a Marriage, um, he's working as a director and a writer on a U.S. set for a show that is itself a Scandinavian adaptation. Is Levy a special case or is he at the forefront of a globalizing TV environment where creators move across roles, locations, and types of production? It's a great question. I think he's both, quite frankly. Um, Haggai, who is just an extraordinary talent, um, was was the first person who brought um, an Israeli show to American television within treatment. As you say, it was the it was the format for, of Bitty Pool that became in treatment. Um, and um, before that, there had never been an Israeli show on 
American television or anywhere outside of Israel. And he became sort of the pioneer of that and, and um, ultimately in treatment begat a couple of Israeli comedies that be and begat Homeland and then Fauda and Shtisel and all this great, great Israeli drama that has, you know, proliferated. But he was the pioneer. He was the first person on that. As far as scenes from a marriage, as, as I told you earlier tonight, um, it had a long gestation. You know, it probably took four years or five years maybe to come to fruition. What happened was that a couple of, maybe a year after the last season of In Treatment on HBO, Haggai got a cold call from Daniel Bergman, who was Ingmar Bergman's son, and said to him um, that the family, um, the Bergman family and the Bergman Foundation, had been contemplating for a while doing a contemporary remake of Scenes from a Marriage. Daniel, who is a director, thought about doing it um, himself. Um, I think he was dissuaded by family members, but he wanted to direct it ultimately. But the, they all decided, they, they were such enormous fans of entreatment and big sort of students of international television that they thought he would be the perfect person to try and adapt it and would he be interested in doing it. It just so happens that Haggai, who grew up on a kibbutz, you know, um, was obsessed with film and when he was, I think, 17, I think he tells the story, I've heard him say it a few times, that, you know, he, he watched the TV show, Scenes from, Scenes from Marriage, which, as I think everybody mm -hmm. may know, was Bergman's only television show that he ever did. Um, and he became obsessed with it. So he knew it very well. He was so enormously flattered by this invitation that he took them up on it and flew to Stockholm and met with Daniel and ultimately other members of the family and the foundation and he thought about it for, he, told, he really thought about it for a long time and agreed to do it. He had such a positive experience with HBO and doing the treatment that he talked to them about it, and they just, of course, like, well, we, you know, we'd love for you to do it. Um, but it took a long time because he wrote it, and then when he delivered the first draft of the pilot, we all thought it was fantastic, and HBO loved it, and... He didn't, um, and he threw it out, and um, then went on to do Our Boys, which is something else we can talk about in a minute, but came back to scenes um, and then decided, had this revelation, um, that, and, and ultimately talked to Amy Herzog, playwright in New York, who he worked with on this um, a little bit, and um, he decided to do the gender reversal, mm -hmm. right, where the the spouse leaving the marriage would be the woman as opposed to the man. Because in the original one that he wrote was very similar to, the, to Bergman's where it was the man leaving. And he just thought it was more contemporary and it worked better. And HBO liked it more. And then he wrote this next script and everyone just, you know, they, they loved it. Yeah. So that's how we'll, that We'll worked. be coming back to this question as we come through. But with the example of scenes from a marriage in mind, how do you see the TV market shifting in the wake of streaming and global production mergers? Have there been significant changes in the way we think about types of TV, adaptation, original format, or roles, you know, creator, show writer, showrunner, writer, director? You know, things have evolved so 
so much, you know, in, let's say, the last, I guess, in treatment was probably 12, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. At that time, you know, what we used to do, and we still do sometimes, is we would take an Israeli show or a British show or, like, in the bridge, you know, a Scandinavian show and do an American version of it. Mm-hmm. And we still do, that's what Homeland was and a lot of successful shows. But with the proliferation of streaming and the, and the immense, almost insatiable uh, need for more content, what started happening, and it initially was more of an economic thing, was that the streamers were buying what we call tapes. So they were buying the original versions of the show in their original language and trying them very inexpensively. And they found that it worked. Hmm. Fauda was the perfect example of that. I remember seeing Fauda when, on a trip to, um, to Israel years ago, about, I don't know, six months or a year before it came out. And I watched a couple of episodes, thought it was fantastic, and thought, like, how are we going to do an American version of this? Because that's, Homeland at the time was massively successful, um, and uh, and in fact, the people that sold it wanted to do an American version of it. But ultimately, you know, the distributors in Israel were able to sell it for a lot of money, um, and uh, the original version. And so, it went out in Hebrew, and it worked. Mm-hmm. It worked immensely, and it was it's great, great show. And then you started seeing other things in, in their native languages um, that were doing the same thing, and, you know, Our Boys was done that way, and then, you know, Apple bought the Israeli show Tehran, which I don't know if anyone saw, is really actually a pretty good show, they're doing a second season of it. Um, and in other, you know, Squid Game, now in, you know, Korean, um, and uh, Japanese shows, and you know, a former colleague of mine just produced this wonderful show on Apple called Pachinko. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's really, really a high-quality drama in Korean. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's due to the fact that th- where we used to sell to an American network, now we're selling to a global audience. And so the ability to watch something in its native language is accepted more. And, and frankly, the, I think viewers have become a little bit more sophisticated and are not afraid of, um, of, of foreign languages, even on domestic networks. Before Our Boys was on in Hebrew, HBO did you know, My Brilliant Friend right in Italian. And so it's becoming more accepted. Uh, interesting. Well, as a follow-up, you know, in recent years, Netflix uh, famously declared that it no longer had a U.S. market as a central target audience, but was now interested in shows with a global appeal, like Squid Game. What are your thoughts about? Do you have further thoughts about this? I mean, you're just saying that. Well, look, it's a complicated question. I mean, Netflix has a lot of issues right now. Obviously, if you've been reading the business uh, of the business of show business, right? Um, you know. Netflix said that because they've virtually reached full penetration in the United States, so they had to go outside the United States. Um, you know, other American streamers haven't. Um, I think that what I'm hearing from 
from streamers, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Paramount Plus or Peacock or whatever these streamers might be, you know, more they just want something great and actually loud. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's so much stuff out there that they have to cut through the clutter. And the only way to cut through the, it's hard to get through, cut through the clutter with a soft, quiet show. Um, I don't think you'd sell scenes from a marriage, frankly, to Peacock or Paramount Plus today. You know, they, you know, when I talk to the people at Peacock, which is owned by the company that produces movies like um, Fast and the Furious, you know, give me something loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, I think it's, it's this need to try to draw subscribers in. Yeah. So let's return back to Scenes from a Marriage um, and uh, Levy's work. Um, Scenes from a Marriage is, is very much connected to his previous work, um, and not only in treatment, but the affair. Um, mm-hmm. All of these shows explore intimacy and feature characters in excruciating emotional pain. But all of the shows have a similar structure, where so much of the action is about people working through their relationships and in increments across time. It seems that this kind of story, uh, this is a kind of story that TV is getting really good at telling. Um, and perhaps starting with scenes from a marriage exploration of intimacy and love, what are your thoughts on why these questions are so resonant with TV creators and audiences now? Or do you think that it isn't a presentist well, concern? Well, I, I think it depends on the creator, but I think these stories touch real human emotion and they affect people at a very deep level. Um, um, I think that if you, the, the, sometimes these are very difficult shows to watch. Um, at times, the affair would get criticized, you know, for being, you know, because you tr- they tried to make it not as difficult to watch, and sometimes they got criticized for glossing over difficulties in marriages. But I think, in particular, Haggai likes to explore human relationships, mm-hmm. and and he's a he, he writes about emotion. Um, the key is to do it in a way that you can maintain the audience. Scenes from a marriage, it's very hard to watch like one episode or, you know, and just sort of get a sense of this. As you and I have discussed, you really, if you go through it in a linear basis, you sort of, you've, you feel the power of these relationships, the disintegration, and ultimately how these people feel about each other at the end. And I, not that, you know, people are looking for satisfaction, but I think that they, it touches their emotion. Mm-hmm. It, true exploration of these, of these relationships and the drama um, is something that I think resonates with everyone. So um, just, not everyone, but people who are willing to let themselves go there. Right. Well, in that regard, I wondered what you, th- you thought about the show's practice of opening um, each episode by showing the, the actors and the crew in masks getting ready for the shoot. Of course, in some ways, it's a marker of the um, you know, extraordinary times in which production t- took place, but you know, various people have had different takes on it. Some critics really hated it. Other uh, people wrote it as a kind of signaling this as a performance mm-hmm. and as a reiteration of an already existing story. But I wondered what you thought of it. You know, honestly, I didn't understand it in the beginning. You know, and, um, you know, and I, I didn't mention it to Haggai, you know, um, but I talked to the producer about it and I said, you know, I, I just didn't understand it, right? And, you know, what was the point of it? And, um, 
you know, he thought it was a great technique. Um, he liked it. It was important to Haggai and his vision of the show. I think it did reflect the time that they shot the show deep, deep, deep in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, they shut down twice. You know, um, you know, everyone was so isolated. And it was a, a way of, you know, showing the isolation and then the coming together. It also was a, a theatrical device. You know, it, I found it kind of interesting. Um, but I will say at the end, you know, um, at the end of episode five, at the end of the series, if you watch the entire show, at the end of episode five, which is, I think, a beautiful episode, what happens at the end when they walk off together, I think really ties it in really yeah, nicely. I, I think it really works. Yeah, yeah, and it breaks the, it, the, the drop, but it's also, it is also an indication of these two actors' incredible friendship. Well, and, that's, and, that's yeah. exactly right, Patrice. And for people who don't know that, you know, um, Oscar and Jessica went to Juilliard together. They knew each other for years and years. They live in New York near each other. They have children the same age. Their children have play dates together. These are people who are actually friends. <laughs> and Jessica came late to this show. She wasn't initially cast in it. Um, but it made the whole process easier because they knew each other. And so much of this show is obviously so emotional. It's so intimate. It's so sexual, you know, that the fact that these were two people who were deeply knew each other for years and were close friends made the whole thing easier to do at a time when, when, and, and I've heard them talk about this in interviews where, you know, this is difficult stuff to act. It's to do this for 10 hours a day, this type of drama, you know, and each episode is seven, eight days. It's, it's excruciatingly difficult to, so to have someone as your partner in it, who you do have a real, you know, bond with made, made it easier. Yeah. Well, we've, we've discussed that Levy flips the gender roles in the adaptation as you said, and I'm just repeating, as the, where the woman is the primary caretaker for the children in, Ber- in Bergman's series, it is now the father who takes on this role. The wife, moreover, is now the initial unfaithful partner. Um, Levy's version of the show is multicultural. Jonathan is a Jew who's left uh, an Orthodox Jewish community. And, in, and as an adjunct professor at uh, Tufts, he teaches philosophy. Um, that's why I love the first episode. Academics of the audience will love the fact that it sets up, you know, she's the tech executive who makes big bucks, and he's the adjunct at Tufts who teaches philosophy. And there's just something, you know, in our world, that's a thing. Um, but the couple um, that acts as his admirer's foil in the first episode is now interracial and polyamorous. What do you think of the changes he made to the show to kind of update it? You know, I really liked it, and I thought it was really smart that he did it, um, uh, as did HBO. They backed him 100% in his vision. Um, I think it contemporizes it. Um, I think it puts a real examination of, of gender roles in a real spotlight, which I think is really interesting. Um, and uh, I, I think it works. Now... Internationally, the reviews are very mixed on this. Some people thought it was great. Some people didn't like it. And in fact, um, 
the show that premiered at the Venice Film Festival and there was a lot of press junkets around. And really, I found bizarre. Um, you know, a lot of the European press um, gave Haggai and Jessica a hard time about this very issue. I mean, there were two interviewers one day that were saying to Jessica, how could you reconcile this character being a mother and walking out on a marriage? You know, she had a pretty strong reaction to the interview saying... So men have done this for, <laughs> for, for, you know, decades and years and centuries and no one seems to have any issue with it. And, and she said, well, but she's moving to Tel Aviv and she's going to come back, you know, once a month. And she said, you know, it happens all the time with men. So I, you know, I, I thought it was, an, a, I, I liked it. I thought it worked and I thought it was, a, you know, a, a good exploration of, uh, of gender yeah. roles. It's, yeah. It's interesting to me, as I told you when we were talking informally that, when I first watched it, because of course we thought we were going to do this in February or something, right. um, and so I, when I watched it in December, um, you know, at first I thought, my God, this guy is so wonderful and patient, and you know, she's so difficult, and you know, the moment when you know she tells him that she's fallen in love with someone else, and he says, you know, we can go to therapy, we can fix this, and she said, I'm no longer attracted to you. How do you fix that? And these kind of really incredibly, and I thought, you know, if it was me, get out. But anyways, watching it through, at first I thought, and I was reading critics who were saying that her role was not fully developed enough, and that this is really from a male point of view. But I have to say, on the second intense viewing of it more recently, um, you know, I was struck by certain things that aren't said, but that are, are certainly understood, so that... When in the first episode, when she, she, it's a very wrenching decision, which I hope women will still be able to make to get an abortion. Um, you know, she says it, it's a it's a very complicated thing for her. But we learn that it was so hard with the first child, and that it took her two years to get back. And so there was some kind of postpartum depression. And she said, you know, I just wanted to get back to my life and being me, I, I, which, you know, as, as a mother myself, let me tell you, yes. So, and as the drama goes on, it's really about how, in, in some ways, I think the, the, the series is about how there's, you know, all these normative ideals that you're supposed to want, and they've achieved it. They're in their 40s. She's not yet 40, but they have their child, and they have this, you know, idyllic kind of house in a certain way. It's very, you know, wonderful spaces. And, and he, they seem so caring for each other. But, um, you know, as it goes on, it becomes clear that she, she didn't, being a mother was hard for her, mm-hmm. that she never really wanted to be married, and that, you know, her own mother suggested that you're not the type to get married. I'm not the type. It runs Correct. in our gene pool. Um, and that they come to a place at the end, in the last episode, which is why I think it's so satisfying, where they accept how, who they are, where they've come, and what it means to love somebody over time. In their way. In their way, exactly. And that, in fact, and I was telling you too, what, one of the things in the last episode, all the men in her life, they all want children. And she's, she's ambivalent about having children, um, but that's what the, you know, both Polly, the young, dashing Israeli, and, um, and certainly Jonathan. So it's interesting that it's the men who want the children, and she is less interested. 
It's really interesting, you know, and I, you know, I, I think it's in the fifth episode, as you say, where Mira talks about what her mother said to her mm-hmm. about being married and their gene pool, and it just doesn't work. And I think that's really elucidating. Um, in in episode one, I think it's episode one, when they decide to have the abortion. It's either episode yeah, one or two. One, yeah. One. Um, Jonathan is devastated, mm-hmm. he, but he's doing it because this is what she wants, and he loves her. Exactly. But he's he's devastated by this decision. The question is whether she's doing it because she doesn't feel that she's fit to be a mom, or whether she's already in another relationship, or whether she doesn't know that she's capable of maintaining this relationship. There's a lot of unanswered questions. It's a, the best part, in my opinion, of episode one is that very powerful last scene, um, which is complicated. And obviously, what happens when she gets the abortion, you know, scars their relationship deeply, and it really, truly affects Jonathan. Um, but again, jumping to the fifth, you know, and I think we're probably ruining this for people who haven't yet seen it, but there is something so satisfying, and, and maybe I'm being a bit of a romantic about this, but I've seen all these episodes so many times, but at the end of episode five, you, I believe that you see these people and they truly do love each other. They love each other deeply in their way, um, and they're not going to live together in all likelihood, although that remains open. But, um, but there's clearly something that is such a deep bond between them that is very, very powerful that sort of says something also about marriage, right? Because these people do ultimately care for each other in a very deep, meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that at the end of the first episode with, with the abortion and how painful it is and how ambivalent he is. But he's a, you know, he's a, a feminist husband. He's listening to her. He, does it, he wants her to do what she feels right and understands it's her decision to make and wants to back her up. But then in, at the end of the one, episode four we just watched, it's, it's the first time he becomes enraged you know, at her um, at the end. Well, just shifting gears. Um, so Israeli creators have been at the forefront of format adaptation and, and originally, as we said, as you said earlier, and originally global, globally distributed television for well over a decade. Uh, the list is long, includes many uh, titles and hits like Euphoria, for instance. In your view, is there a specific set of preoccupations or approaches to television storytelling that Israeli creators, creators are distinct in telling? So I've been asked this question about 500 times mm-hmm. for about 15 years, ever since I started selling these Israeli shows. You know, um, I think there's a glib answer, which I think has some truth to it, and I think there's a deeper answer. First of all, there's a very developed film and television industry there. Um, very, very talented. I mean, there's great playwrights and great theater and and really really great film and television for a long time. And I think when the world got smaller, first with the export of television, then with shows moving like in treatment and other foul success, you know, um, and things traveling just 
people accepted Israel. I mean, sure, people were buying shows and formatting them from England, like All in the Family years ago, and millions of shows, um, but never Israel. And, you know, I think that the more glib, facile answer is that, you know, historically, Jews are great storytellers, and they have been historically. Um, and um, I, think, I think that's part of it. And there's, but as I say, there's a very rich and developed industry there um, with enormous talent, um, all of whom want to work here, mm-hmm. right? But um, I think that's the truth. There's just really great storytellers there, and, um, and you're going to see a lot more of those shows. Listen, you see the actors are moving, the directors are moving. There's shows that you've seen... They don't, you, you don't even realize come from Israeli directors and, and writers and movies, but um, it's a very rich, rich industry there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, my last question before we open up for audience questions, but so I wanted to just, in preparing for this event, I consulted my former colleague, uh, who is a television scholar, Tasha Oren, who I know many in the audience know. She's also an expert on Israeli TV. And so, and she teaches at Tufts uh, now, although... She in, know Jonathan? No, she's in film and media, and she's a, not an adjunct. Um, different, different department. <laughs> different department. Um, she told me, she was t- and I was trying to verify this, and I've learned more since, but she, she wanted me to ask this, and she helped me a lot with thinking through questions. And she said... Um, that for most audiences outside of Sweden, Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage was known as a film made by a revered master of cinema at a moment when cinema itself was at the forefront of cultural life and ideas. So her question that she wanted me to pose to you is, what do you think about the role of so-called prestige TV now? Um, How does it compare to the way that cinema was treated in the 70s? And I just want to just turn the screw a little, one more notch to say, you know, Bergman himself considered Scenes from a Marriage a television film. You know, not the, not the abridged version that got circulated, right. but he saw his, his ambition was to make really quality television, like to make like the whole film television distinction. So I just wondered if you would want to remark on that. Well, this, you know, obviously the 70s, I mean, I'm sure there are courses here about film in the 70s. That's when I was in school here. All <laughs> Me right? too. Um, I remember uh, seeing Last Tango in Paris in IV at that mm-hmm. theater right, practically next to the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we're in the golden age of television right now. I mean, there's so much great television. And there has been, frankly, for a long time. You know, for probably, it's probably been seven, eight years of, ten years of great television. It just gets better and better. I mean, even longer. Look at The Wire on HBO. What's better than that? You know, or The Sopranos, or, but there's just been so much great television. You know, when I started in the industry, you know, um, to show you how things change, when I started in the industry, I would ask, I would go into a colleague's office who was, um, you know, represented film writers, screenwriters, and I'd say, you know, does so-and-so want to do a television show? And they'd look at me like, he writes movies. 
Why would he want to do television, right? That's, and get out of here. You know, um, and now, all they want to do is television, right? Because they get, in television, the writer is the king. And the writer is, you know, in, in, a, in charge. Where in, in film, it's really the director. But um, there's also so much content. There's so many platforms where you can do really great work. And, you know, there's not an actor anywhere who won't do a television series right now, which five years ago, some would, but anybody, any actor will do any, and any writer will do television or film. Also, as we've discussed a little bit, you know, the distinction between what is television and what is film with the streaming universe is very blurred. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix is making, you know, you know, a hundred movies, you know, um, some of which are released theatrically, some aren't. And, and um, so you're, get, you're getting auteurs like Scorsese and Spielberg who are doing movies for streamers. They think it's a film, mm-hmm. similar to Bergman, mm-hmm. right? So I think we're kind of in, back into that sort of same time. But, you know, we are definitely in a, in a, in a great era of television, and there's television for everyone. Um, you know, there's the great, really, you know, these wonderful, wonderful shows that are on streaming. They're very, very powerful. You know, shows like this that are, you know, are not seen necessarily by massive audiences, but are really, really good. Um, and then there's other types of television that get massive audiences, like my friend Dick Wolf, right? Mm-hmm. And all of his shows. God forbid we would be here on stage and not mention Dick, right? <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so there's, you know, there's just an enormous appetite. Uh, and I think, I think the lines are really blurred between what is film and what is television. And it's, it's evidenced by the people that I speak to, whether they be executives, whether they be major actors or writers, you know, great content is great wherever it's exhibited. Right. Yeah, and here, here, it's just but, true. But she's absolutely right about the 70s to today. It's a really great analogy. Yeah, yeah. This has been so great. Thank you so much for coming. I just could sit here all night and listen to you. And I just want to follow up. Tell my on. wife she's sitting to your right. She doesn't want to listen to me anymore. <laughs> You're so lucky. We'll have another You're scene from a marriage afterwards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, I just want to follow up on exactly what you were talking about, um, the distinction between film and TV. We had, I was thinking, I, we had um, Ezra Edelman here to talk about, a few years ago, to talk about the OJ, what I ta- thought was a miniseries, right? And I oh, said, yeah. I was super psyched that it was a mini. he's bringing back the miniseries, and he said it was an eight-hour feature film. And so we had an interesting discussion around that. And so I've thought a lot, especially in TV classes, about this distinction. And I've thought a lot about what it means to talent or studios. But I am really interested in what it means at an agency. Because you guys have TV divisions, right, and film divisions. But do you have content divisions? I mean, how do you deal with this when all the lines are so blurred? Um, you know, it really depends upon the creator's vision, right? So 
um, if, the, if the creator feels that it's a film, it's a film. Where it gets really hard to distinguish is with the proliferation of limited series, right? Because this show goes five episodes. You know, most limited series go about eight or ten episodes. Traditionally, the difference between film and television, when I would have these conversations with screenwriters and directors, would be that, you know, a movie has a beginning, middle, and end. But a television show continues. And so, with, you know, without really, until the end of the series, you know, the, you know the, the, the ending, but it just, it continues on. So if there's some finality to it, it's probably more of a film. But again, it's what the, it's what the creator thinks, right? But if, if that, you know, that person's vision who came and talked to your class, you know, it was exhibited, you know, on FX, which, which is a linear television network, right? So, you know, I, I, I think John Langraff, who runs FX, would say, you can call it whatever you want. It was a great piece of work. It was great artistic vision. And I don't care what we call it. Now, it'll be nominated for an Emmy and not an Oscar. So, you know, that may be disappointing to that person. But it was, it was you know, Ryan Murphy and that whole group did a great job. And it was a great show. Um, hi, yes, I have a question. Um, so in a lot of communication classes that I've taken, um, we've talked a lot about just like cultural differences, and I know that global TV has, I mean, you're dealing with the globe, so of course there's going to be, I guess, cultural differences. So how do you deal with those and incorporate those into a lot of the um, productions that you guys deal with? Well, there's an enormous need for diversity in, in sort of what you would call cultural television, right? You know, there is, you know, a, you know, a massive appetite to tr- try to get diversity of, of um, everywhere, from behind the camera to in front of the camera to stories about different types of cultures. So it's enormously important. And, you know, um, I think the industry has made some strides, but not enough. And I know from our agency, and I'm sure others, but from we're trying to do whatever we can to bring more diverse people into our workforce from the bottom up, because we need representatives who understand different cultures and different types of voices so that they can represent that type of talent, bring in that type of talent, because that's what America looks like. And that's what's going to sell and be appealing are those types of shows from different types of, um, of uh, communities. Does the streaming model change the, the profit motive for the creators? Is there a different... Does the, I'm sorry, say that again. Does profit the, the, motive for, for streaming, does that change the... the that's, a, you know, that's a whole class, okay? <laughs> the answer is yes in a major way, and that's one of the most fundamental differences in television today compared to a few years ago. Changed massively. Um, you know, the days of, uh, um, you know, a show like when Marcy made the Cosby show and it was syndicated to local television stations around the country and got huge ratings, you know, 
you know, uh, and, and enormous profits to studios. Um, you know, that's how television business worked for years and years and years until pretty recently. Now, because of the proliferation of streamers, and local stations aren't buying reruns of shows very much, very little. And so streamers are, this is a really short answer to a long, complicated question, but um, streamers are buying some library, what I would call library product, but not a lot, and not for a lot of money, and not exclusively. You know, they'll, they'll buy, but they'll let other people buy it, which never happened before. So what's happening now for the creators is that we have to work models where they get paid they get paid perhaps less in big success, but they also get paid something in failure. So, you know, and in success, what we do is we make really big deals for them on their next project, which makes up for, you know, perhaps less of the profits that exist down the end. I hope that explains it, but that's, that's like the paragraph in the syllabus about what the course is about. Well, thank you very much for, thank for you. joining us. Please Can I just join... give a plug about Haggai about one yes, thing? Yes, okay? please. Because I feel very strongly about this person, as my wife knows. So if you watch Scenes from Marriage, I urge you to watch one through five because you get a real sense of what that show is. But he, he made a show for HBO a few years ago called Our Boys, um, which is an extraordinary piece of work, in my, in my opinion. Um, and it's, um, it's a show about a true story actually, about um, in 2014 when um, these three Israeli boys were um, abducted by, um, by some Hamas terrorists and murdered. And in retaliation, ultra-religious people kidnapped and burned to death an innocent Palestinian teenager. And there was a manhunt, and they found the killers of this Palestinian boy. And there was a trial where this person was convicted um, and sentenced to a life sentence, these two people. So um, this is a show that is a different way of doing a procedural trauma, like the stuff that Dick does so well. It's a story about hate crimes, this is not a political story about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is a story about hate crimes and the effect of hate crimes on families, the Palestinian family and the Israeli family, and the commonality that these people have. So um, a guy wanted to do this. Actually, it was HBO's idea. They saw an article in the New York Times. They brought it to him. He wrote this show, um, and it was, it's in Hebrew and Arabic. Uh, and... Um, and it was put on HBO kind of in the middle of the week, late at night, because it wasn't going to, get, it wasn't going to be a Sunday night at 9 o'clock HBO show. But it's an incredible series and something that I think is, you know, you know just, it's just brilliant. So um, maybe someone should, can, you know, you, got, you should watch it or Bring it to put it into a class or something like that, because it's something that, um, that he's done that I, I think is extraordinary that, you know, everyone knows about in treatment and the affair and scenes, but this is a very small, very intimate, very 
and powerful, powerful show. It's really good. Thank you. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Rick Rosen. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.